Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 32, Daniel chapter 11, continued. We spent much time following a historical trail of kings and nations last week because it's important to see how the first part of the prophecy of Daniel 11 actually played out. Now it essentially took us from the end of the media Persian Empire to the new Greek Empire of Alexander the Great then to its division into four parts. And indeed through about verse 27 or 28 of chapter 11, we can pinpoint real documented historical happenings that fulfill the prophecy with astounding accuracy. In fact, it is primarily this amazing accuracy that has made liberal Bible scholars determine that Daniel had to have been written after the fact. Now, I have structured this this study of Daniel 11 with the premise that it, along with chapter 12, intertwines three different eras. The era of the first latter days, the era of the second, the future latter days, and the era of the end of days that immediately flows from the second latter days. So, my hope is to untangle these events spoken of in Daniel and place each in their proper era. Now, I define these eras in the following way. The first latter days were the decades leading up to, during, and immediately following the coming of Christ and then His crucifixion. The second latter days are the decades leading up to and during the second coming of Christ and the end of days or the end times is the immediate outcome of the second latter days. The end of days includes the cataclysmic conditions that result from the return of Messiah, the war of Armageddon and then these climactic moments that usher us into the millennial kingdom. The end of days will also will also see the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth. So from the perspective of the book of Daniel, the several prophecies contained in it are about the rise and fall of the Gentile world domination in order to bring about God's plan of redemption that brings an Israel-based, planet-wide kingdom of God with its world headquarters in Jerusalem. But one of the features of Daniel's prophecy is that some of the prophesied events seem to overlap into two eras. Some part of a prophecy is fulfilled in one era and then is completed in the next era. Or the prophecy manifests itself in one era and then it repeats even more fully in the next era. So placing each piece of the prophecy neatly into one era isn't always possible because that's not even how prophecy generally works. 
it is usual for prophecy to happen and then to happen again much later. Now what we've seen thus far up to verse 21 of chapter 11 is that we can place each event into the era of the first latter days. But remember as we continue our study of chapters 11 and 12 that there is one overriding context that we must not lose sight of. A context that is a fly in the ointment to much modern popularized prophecy teaching. And that overriding context is stated back in chapter 10, verse 14, where it says, So I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the Achrit Hayamim, the, the latter days, for there is still another vision which will relate to those days. It's common in Christianity to interpret the phrase, your people, Daniel's people, to mean Gentile Christians the church which couldn't be further from the plain sense of the passage the passage says that the oracle of this messenger angel has to do with Daniel's people who are of course the Jews who are in process of being released from their Babylonian exile oh yes Christians non-believing Gentiles will be much affected by what happens here Christians will be positively affected and non-believing Gentiles will be negatively affected. But the purpose and the point of what God is doing is directly aimed at the Jewish people, Daniel's people, not humanity in general and certainly not the Gentile church. So let's begin by refamiliarizing ourselves with the second half of Daniel chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 21, so if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1115. Daniel 11, starting at verse 21, will go through verse 39. There will arise in his place a despicable man, not entitled to inherit the majesty of the kingdom, but he will come without warning and gain the kingdom by intrigue. Large armies will be broken and swept away before him, as well as the prince of the covenant. Alliances will be made with him, but he will undermine them by deceit. Then although he will have but a small following, he will emerge, he'll become strong. And without warning, he will assail the most powerful men in each province and do things his predecessors never did. Either recently or in the distant past, he will reward them with plunder, spoil, and wealth while devising plots against their strongholds, but only for a time. He will summon his power and courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south will fight back with a very large and powerful army, but he'll not succeed because of the plots devised against him. Yes, those who shared his food will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will... Uh, fall in the slaughter. These two kings bent on mischief will sit at the same table speaking lies to each other but none of this will succeed because the appointed end will not have yet come. Then the king of the north will return to his own land with great wealth and his heart set against the holy covenant. He will take action and then return home. 
At the time designated, he will come back to the south. But this time, things will turn out differently than before. Because ships from Kittim will come against him, so that his courage will fail him. Then in retreat, he'll take furious action against the Holy Covenant. Again, showing favor to those who abandon the Holy Covenant. Armed forces will come at his order, profaning the sanctuary and fortress. They will abolish the daily burnt offering, set up the abomination that causes desolation. Those who act wickedly against the covenant, he will corrupt with his blandishments, but the people who know their God will stand firm and prevail. Those among the people who have discernment will cause the rest of the people to understand what is happening. Nevertheless, for a while... They will fall victim to sword, fire, exile, and pillage. And when they stumble, they will receive a little help, although many who join them will be insincere. Even some of those with discernment will stumble, so that some of them will be refined and purified and cleansed for an end yet to come at the designated time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt himself, consider himself greater than any god. He will utter monstrous blasphemies against the god of gods. He will prosper only until the period of wrath is over, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no respect for the gods his ancestors worshipped or for the god women worship. He won't show respect for any god, because he will consider himself greater than all of them. But instead, he will honor the God of strongholds with gold, silver, precious stones, other costly things. He will honor a God unknown to his ancestors. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will confer honor on those he acknowledges, causing them to rule over many and distributing land as a reward. Now, while only some Bible scholars would agree with me, I find some prophetic overlap of eras, beginning in verse 21. That is, this despicable man that arises happens in both the first latter days and in the second latter days. In the first latter days, that man's easily identifiable as Antiochus Epiphanes, king of the north. And the despicable man of the second latter days is also easily identifiable as the Antichrist, although we don't know yet who will occupy that position. Now let me remind you that the term the king of the north, uh, rather the king of the south, means Egypt. The king of the north refers to the king who controls that part of the Greek empire, or better, the empire of Javan, That is north of Egypt. You can review our previous lesson to understand why it's calling this empire Javan is preferable to calling it Greece. The reason that kingdoms and territories are discussed in the manner that they are in this chapter results from the historical reality that Alexander the Great, king of Greece, conquered the former media Persian Empire, but then almost immediately died of illness at 32 years of age. He had no heirs. His death was sudden, unexpected. So there was no plan of succession in place. 
Thus, his various generals and others of his royal court divided up the empire into districts, several districts or kingdoms. Each one took a a piece of his own. Over a short period of time, the several districts coalesced into four as predicted in Daniel's prophecy and then four kings ruled over the entire former Greek empire. The two most powerful, the two most influential of these kings are designated in the Bible as the king of the north and the king of the south. Some commentaries will say that the king of the north, uh, that, the, that the north rather is Syria. And while that is a rather large oversimplification, it's not necessarily incorrect. Now for the purposes of the first 21 verses for certain, and then probably up until either verse 35, maybe 39, there's good arguments from both viewpoints, the north is ruled by the royal dynasty of the Cellulus family. The south, Egypt, is ruled by the royal dynasty of the Ptolemy family. So all the wars and battles and intrigues, uh, all of this that we read about at least through verse 21 take place between these two ruling dynasties. Now while power shifted back and forth between the north and the south, it can generally be said that overall the north had more influence and success than the south, therefore the king of the north was usually more powerful than the king of the south. Where things start to get interesting starts with verse 28. Because there it speaks of the king of the north returning home after attacking the king of the south yet again. But a thought has welled up in his mind, we're told, to come against the holy covenant. And because of this thought, he's going to take some action against it. The holy covenant can only mean God's covenant with Israel in general. In other words, mostly li- uh, most likely covering both the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant of Moses. So, this is referring directly to God's covenant people, Israel. Here is what one of the later church fathers, Jerome, had to say about this passage and what occurred historically. Both the Greek and the Roman historians relate that after Antiochus Epiphanes had been expelled from Egypt and had gone once more, he came to Judea, that is, against the Holy Covenant, and he despoiled the temple and removed a huge amount of gold. Then having stationed a garrison in the citadel, he returned to his own land. Apparently there is some disagreement over why and in what condition Epiphanes and his army left Egypt. Jerome says he was expelled. But the book of 1 Maccabees says he was victorious. Now likely, because the history of what happened is being greatly condensed. It's only an issue of semantics. Here's what the Jewish writer of 1 Maccabees says. Now please remember that while this book doesn't appear in in your Bibles, in Protestant Bibles, it remains in Catholic Bibles. And almost all of the various Eastern Orthodox Christian Bibles. The 15 books of the Apocrypha, 
which Maccabees is part, were removed from Christian Bibles only in the 1500s AD by the Protestant Reformation. So while these so-called apocryphal books like Maccabees and Tobit and Esdras and others have never been taken by the church as having equal inspiration as the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are considered worthy and reliable and vital for proper biblical context. Especially as it concerns the time from about 400 B.C. to just before the birth of Christ. Here's what it says in 1 Maccabees 1, starting at verse 16. Once Antiochus had seen his authority established, he determined to make himself king of Egypt and ruler of both kingdoms. So he invaded Egypt in massive strength with chariots and elephants and cavalry and a large fleet. He engaged Ptolemy, king of Egypt, in battle. And Ptolemy turned back and fled before his advance, leaving many casualties. The fortified cities of Egypt were captured, and Antiochus plundered the country. And after his conquest of Egypt in the year 143, Antiochus turned about and advanced on Israel and Jerusalem in massive strength. Insolently breaking into the sanctuary, he removed the golden altar and the lampstand for the light with all of its fittings, together with the table for the loaves of the permanent offering, all the libation vessels, the cups, the golden censers, the veil, the crowns, and the golden decoration on front of the temple, which he stripped of everything. He made off with the silver and the gold and precious vessels. He discovered the secret treasures and seized them. Removing all these, he went back to his own country, having shed much blood and uttered words of extreme arrogance. So here we have an authoritative expanded version of what Daniel 11 verse 28 meant when it said that this king of the north would set himself against the holy covenant. But we also have every reason to see these same circumstances as happening again in the future when the Antichrist reveals himself and does essentially the same thing. Daniel 11.29, however, says that Antiochus Epiphanes will later go back to the south with his army, but with different results. Apparently, while he had accomplished the taking of some fortresses and cities in Egypt in that first attack, that first victory, the results were short-lived. So now, in about 168 BC, Epiphanes takes another expeditionary force to Egypt. Egypt had solved some of its internal squabbles. And in addition, they had made alliances with, uh, with uh, Katim. Because Daniel 11.30 says some ships will come from Katim and support Egypt against Epiphanes. Now I told you in our last lesson that Katim was the name of a son of Javan. Javan was a grandson of Noah. And that Katim, as a named region, is identified as the island of Crete. However, it's attested to by Josephus that over time, the term Katim became a general designation for all 
all the islands of the Mediterranean Sea. It's much like today when we refer to the several islands of the Caribbean as just the Caribbean, as opposed to listing each one of the many islands separately. Now we arrive at one of the most infamous moments in Jewish history. And of course it is predicted here in Daniel 11. Daniel 11, verse 31. Armed forces will come at his order and profane the sanctuary and fortress. They will abolish the daily burnt offering and set up the abomination that causes desolation. The army of the north, sent by its king, Antiochus Epiphanes, took over the temple and they desecrated it. This event would change Israel forever. When the Jews finally took the temple back a few years later and cleansed it, it was commemorated with a new holiday called Hanukkah. The Feast of Dedication, or better, Rededication. Even though only a couple of short sentences are used in Daniel 11 in prediction of this terrible event, we have the book of Maccabees that once again gives us more in-depth information about what actually played out historically. This will play such a huge role in Israel's future and it's going to be repeated with the advent of the Antichrist that we would be foolish not to spend a few minutes to read about it. So, here is 1 Maccabees 1 beginning in verse 29. Two years later, the king sent Mysark through the, uh, through the cities of Judah. He came to Jerusalem with an impressive force. And addressing them with what appeared to be peaceful words, he gained their confidence. Then suddenly he fell on the city, dealing it a terrible blow, destroying many of the people of Israel. He pillaged the city, he set it on fire. He tore down its houses and its encircling wall. He took the women and the children captive and he commandeered the cattle. They then rebuilt the city of David with a great strong wall and strong towers and made this their citadel. There they installed a brood of sinners, of renegades, who fortified themselves inside of it, storing arms and provisions and depositing there the loot they had collected from Jerusalem. They were to prove a great trouble. It became an ambush for the sanctuary, an evil adversary for Israel at all times. They shed innocent blood all around the sanctuary. They defiled the sanctuary itself. The citizens of Jerusalem fled because of them. She became a dwelling place of strangers. Estranged from her own offspring, her children forsook her. Her sanctuary became as forsaken as a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning. Her Sabbaths into a mockery. Her honor into reproach. Her dishonor now fully matched her former glory. Her greatness was turned into grief. The king then issued a proclamation to the whole kingdom that all were to become a single people, every nation renouncing its particular customs. All the Gentiles conformed to the king's decree, and many Israelites chose to accept his religion, sacrificing to idols and profaning the Sabbath. 
The king also sent edicts by messenger to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah, directing them to adopt customs foreign to their country, banning the burnt offerings, sacrifices, libations from the sanctuary, profaning Sabbaths and the feasts, defiling the sanctuary and everything holy, building altars and shrines and temples for idols, sacrificing pigs and unclean beasts, leaving their sons uncircumcised, prostituting themselves to all kinds of impurity and abomination so that they should forget the law and revoke all observance of it. Anyone not obeying the king's command was to be put to death. Writing in such terms to every part of his kingdom, the king appointed inspectors for the whole people and they directed all the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice city by city. Many of the people, that is, every apostate from the law, rallied to them. So they committed evil in the country, forcing Israel into hiding in any possible place of refuge. On the 15th day of Chislev, in the year 145, the king built the appalling abomination on top of the altar of burnt offering. And the altars and altars were built in the surrounding towns of Judah, and incense offered at the doors of houses in the streets. Any books of the law that came to light were torn up and burned. Whenever anyone was discovered possessing a copy of the covenant or practicing the law, the king's decree sentenced him to death. Month after month, they took harsh action against any offenders they discovered in all the towns of Israel. On the 25th day of each month, sacrifice was offered on the altar erected on top of the altar of burnt offering. Women who had had their children circumcised were put to death according to the edict with their babies hung around their necks and the members of their household and those who had performed the circumcision were executed along with them. Yet there were many in Israel who stood firm. They found the courage to refuse unclean food. They chose death rather than contamination by such fare or profanation of the Holy Covenant and they were executed. It was a truly dreadful retribution that visited Israel. I find it interesting that while we can all feel pain over this, and then some anxiety for what we know lies ahead, especially for the Jewish people, who will suffer all this anew when the Antichrist appears, the reality is, sorry to say it, that the church, beginning with the church of Rome and continuing right until today, has in many ways followed Epiphany's lead and have persecuted the Jewish people as well as believers in Messiah who uphold the Jewish people. The church has outlawed God's law, just like Epiphany's did. The church has declared the Sabbath to be abolished, just like Epiphanes did. And now in Germany, circumcision for any reason is considered mutilation and it's a crime punishable by prison. Gentile believers who seek to follow God's biblical law are regularly banished from many of our Christian denominations and branded as heretics, members of a cult. And while it isn't so today, but Revelation reveals it will be again, just recall 
that during the Inquisition in medieval times, Jews and Christians who didn't follow these same edicts of their church leaders were imprisoned, beaten, dismembered, and burned alive. So as John says in 1 John 4, starting in verse 1, Dear friends, don't trust every spirit. On the contrary, test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit which acknowledges that Yeshua the Messiah came as a human being is from God. Every spirit which does not acknowledge Yeshua is not from God. In fact, this is the spirit of the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist. You've heard that he's coming. Well, he's here now. He's in the world already. You, children, you're from God and have overcome these false prophets because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world's viewpoint and the world listens to them. Now although we speak about the person of the Antichrist appearing as a future event, which it certainly is, we are told unequivocally by John that the spirit of the Antichrist is here. Now. It's operating. It's working through false prophets. What's a false prophet? A religious leader who teaches falsehoods. And worldly leaders who of course try to pound biblical faith into a mold that the secular world accepts. Or they just try to ban it altogether. The evil Antiochus Epiphanes overtly attempted to eradicate faith in the God of Israel and the observance of his ways and commands and of the Levitical sacrifices. And here's the thing. How did he attack this problem? He did it by beginning with an order to abolish the law. Step one. Next, get rid of the Torah. Then the feasts. Then the Shabbat. All other holy observances commanded by the Lord. Let those who have an ear to hear listen. Verse 31 speaks of the abomination of desolation that will be set up in the holy sanctuary, the temple. This directly refers to what we just learned in 1 Maccabees 1.54 that says, On the 15th day of Kislev, in the year 145, the king built the appalling abomination on top of the altar of burnt offering, and altars were built in the surrounding towns of Judah. Some kind of a structure, a, a, a heathen altar structure, was placed on top of the altar of burnt offering at the temple in Jerusalem. Josephus says that the king, Epiphanes, also built a pagan altar upon the temple altar and slaughtered swine thereon, thereby practicing a form of sacrifice neither lawful nor native to the religion of the Jews. 2 Maccabees chapter 6 says this about that terrible time. Shortly afterwards, the king set Gerontes the Athenian to force the Jews to violate their ancestral customs and to no longer live by the laws of God. 
and to profane the temple in Jerusalem and dedicate it to Olympian Zeus and the one on Mount Gerizim to Zeus, the patron of strangers, as the inhabitants of the latter place had requested. The advent of these evils was painfully hard for all the people to bear. The temple was filled with reveling and debauchery by the Gentiles, who took their pleasure with prostitutes, had intercourse with women in the sacred precincts, introducing other indecencies besides. The altar of sacrifice was loaded with victims proscribed by the law as profane. No one might either keep the Sabbath or observe the traditional feasts or as much as admit to being a Jew. So we see from this ancient document written from before the time of Christ that the altar was defiled by having a pagan altar placed on top of it. Pigs and other forbidden animals were sacrificed there. The temple was rededicated to Zeus Olympus and this would automatically have involved a statue being erected in the most holy place because the dedication of a temple to a pagan god required the image of that god to be placed there. Again, this is going to happen again with the Antichrist. So we can place this event of past history also into the future. We can assign it to the first latter days and then it's going to be repeated in the second latter days. So two eras are being spoken of here. Or as Dr. Keel says about these verses, these circumstances show that in prophetic contemplation in Daniel 11, 20-45, there is comprehended in the image of one king what has been historically fulfilled in its beginnings by Antiochus Epiphanes, but shall only meet its complete fulfillment by the Antichrist at the end. Now Daniel 11.32 tells us the sad reality that many will happily follow along with the king's edicts and they will do so by means of flattery. That is, the government will congratulate them. They'll hold them up as intelligent, reasoned people. Good, responsible citizens. Those who follow this government edict then value what the government tells them to value. They discard what the government tells them to discard. But who are these people who go along with Antiochus Epiphanes edicts? They're Jews. Who else would be rewarded for not following the law of Moses? for quitting Shabbat, for eating unclean food, for abandoning the Torah. Now, I sure hope that you're feeling a little uncomfortable with all this. Because, man, this is much closer to home than any of us would like to admit. But who will stand firm and prevail? Who will disobey their government and their religious leaders' edicts to abandon the Torah, to quit the Shabbat, to stop obeying God's commandments? Other Jews. Those faithful Jews who the government and the religious leaders say are rebels. Daniel 11.33 characterizes them as those who know God. 
And says verse 33, there will be some in the Jewish population who will understand the gravity of what's happening. And they're going to tell others about it. Some will comprehend that this just this just isn't a, a government trying to do good by establishing tolerance and respect for one another as they claim. This is a bold attempt to eradicate any allegiance to the God of Israel because it's seen as a threat to peace. And many Jews will be steadfast in the Lord and they'll have courage and they will defy their government and they'll defy their Jewish religious leadership knowing it's probably going to cost them their friends, maybe their families probably their possessions and all in many cases their livelihoods and a lot of the time their lives we're told in verse 34 that when these faithful Jews stumble they do get a little help but most of it will come from so-called brothers who are insincere that is, fellow Jews will come to them behaving as concerned friends and they will try to persuade them that they just need to go along to get along. Come on, follow the crowd. Because after all, if the majority are doing it, how can it be wrong? It'll be much like when those false friends came to the devastated Job and they told him it was because of his sin that these terrible things are, are happening to him. After all, bad things don't happen to good people, right? I mean, the, the proof of God's love for us is wealth, popularity, health, no problems. So all this trouble Judah is facing from Epiphanes is because these rebellious Jews who just won't compromise while they're bringing the suffering upon their own heads and now this is causing everybody else to suffer too. Wise up. Blend in. Then life will be good. God will understand. But then a warning in verse 36. Even some who are wise and sincere will fail when the persecution gets bad enough. This will prove to be a time of great testing and God intends it to be that way. Such falling away, stumbling, will be for a purpose. To separate the wheat from the chafe, the goats from the sheep. This should come as no surprise during Antiochus Epiphany's reign of terror and it should also come as no surprise to us who are almost certainly living in the second latter days. All throughout the history of God's people, including Christians and Jews, persecution has been part of the experience. And this persecution, by the way, isn't always by outsiders. It's not always by enemies who trouble and kill us. Too often it's by our fellow brethren, our families, our communities. 
And this sifting and separating of believers is going to continue until the time of the end. We're not just told this, we're promised it. Yeshua is quoted this way in the New Testament Gospel of John. John 16, 1-5 Now I've told you these things so that you won't be caught by surprise. They will ban you from the synagogue. In fact, the time will come when anyone who kills you will think he's serving God. They will do these things because they've understood neither the Father nor me. But I've told you this. So that when the time comes for it to happen, you'll remember that I told you. I didn't tell you this at first because I was with you. But now I'm going to the one who sent me. We'll continue with Daniel chapter 11 next week.